This week on Binge Reading, delightfully fresh and funny rom-com from Amy Popel. Her latest romp, The Sweet Spot, is a tale of spurned love, revenge, and the healing power of friendship. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Amy talks about her fourth Laugh Out Loud escapade. The Washington Post said of the sweet spot, she puts more planes in the air than an ambitious air traffic controller and gracefully lands each one. In our giveaway this week, a marathon mystery giveaway, 50 books from popular fiction authors, including one from my own of Golden Blood Mystery Series and Old California Series, book one, Poison Legacy, a full-length mystery, and book four, a New York Christmas novella, a romance with a mysterious element and a prequel to the series. Take your pick, just go to the link for free downloadable books. There's 49 others as well as my own, so you've got plenty of choice. You'll find the link in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy the show, do leave us a review somewhere so others will discover us and great books they love to read. But now, here's Amy. Hello there, Amy, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Now, you're an established rom-com author. This is the fourth book that you've written. They've all done very well. This one has got a lovely premise. Three women, Lauren, Olivia, and Melinda, all with totally different motives, and not necessarily at the beginning, good motives, get involved in either caring for or at least investing time in the welfare of a little baby who happens to just be without his parents at the stage. That's part of the setup for the story. You describe it as a love letter to family, friendships and Greenwich Village. Tell us something about this fourth novel. So I wanted to write a book that took place in Greenwich Village because that's where I live. That is my neighborhood. It's beautiful. I happen to live in faculty housing at one of the biggest universities here, which is NYU. So I live in this sort of large, very strange faculty dorm almost, which is, I think, a novel in and of itself at some point. I think that should be the next novel that I write. But I walk around this neighborhood all the time and you see faces over and over again, even though this is a big, big city. But it's Greenwich Village feels like a village. And we have these beautiful brownstones. So I'm always walking around Washington Square Park and looking up at these beautiful, iconic brownstones. And I just wondered what goes on in there. And I got this idea that I wanted there to be three women all in the area who don't know each other at the outset of the book, have pretty quickly every reason to hate each other, and then who end up overcoming that and not only becoming friends, but they sort of bond over this little baby that really has nothing to do with any of them. <laughs> but he becomes their problem. It's funny that you use that phrase and also that you speak so highly of it because you've got a couple of very funny tongue-in-cheek short clips about the book on your website and I think on YouTube as well. 
which kind of plays on that thing of how unfriendly people are in New York. Yes. It's something I was trying to get across in this book, which is that Greenwich Village, for example, very charming, very beautiful, but it's also gritty. It's gross sometimes. The day after Halloween, when all the students have gone out partying, it is You have to watch where you step. It's disgusting. And New York is that way. It's both wonderful and it has this kind of terrible, (laughs) smelly, gross side to it. And with Lauren, my character Lauren, she makes pottery. And I wanted her to make beautiful things, but I wanted them to reflect that same combination of two things at the same time. So when I had her making this beautiful pottery, I decided... Let's have her signature thing be that she paints cockroaches on them or slugs on them or dead animals or something. Because I just wanted to reflect that same idea that things can be beautiful and lovely when you look at them in a certain light. And then on a different day, in a different mood, in a different situation, you see it quite differently and maybe not quite as rosy. (laughs) Yes, I must admit Lauren's pottery. I did think that it was a pretty brilliant idea. Probably somebody has already done it, but I can imagine that being a very high-selling item in one of those design stores. Yes, something with an edge. I think that that, that to me is very much what New York is all about. Things tend to have, they're not too pretty. They're not too cute. There's always a bit of an edge to it. And what you referenced before, yes, if your listeners go to YouTube and put in my name and the book title, either The Sweet Spot or Musical Chairs, You can see these, or small admissions as well. I do these book trailers that I just, I like to communicate something about the book without it being something in the book, if that makes sense. Yes. Look, it's had a lot of great reviews of The Sweet Spot, and it's described by a lot of them. It's generally agreed. Fresh, funny, slapstick comedy, comedy of errors. And it's obvious that you have found your sweet spot with rom-coms. Did you start right from the beginning writing in this genre and why do you enjoy it so much? Well, I definitely lean more toward the calm than the rom. So most of my books do have some sort of a little romantic element in there somewhere, but straight up pure romance readers might be disappointed simply because the love aspect of the book often comes about in another way. It might be the love of found family or the love of friends or something like that. I do like to work a little romance into the book. So I think rom-com is a perfectly suitable genre. I think that's probably the one I'm writing in. I would say that I always wanted to write comedy. I always wanted to make people laugh. I don't shy away from having difficult situations in my book and heartfelt situations because families are full of difficult and heartfelt situations. But I never want to lose sight of the fact that what I love to do is see the bright side, see the funny side, see something humorous in whatever bad situation we come across. And I try to do that personally in my own life when I'm going through some sort of a hardship. If I can laugh, it's medicine for me. It, it It doesn't fix everything, but in the moment, it can bring a lot of joy in what might otherwise be a very difficult situation. So that's definitely the calm side is really important to me. I like in these times that are sometimes dark to give readers something to laugh about. There are a lot of very funny situations. One of those three main characters, Melinda, is set on wreaking vengeance on the other two because she's got a personal vendetta against them. And you think up the most creative ways for Melinda to take out her wrath. I actually, that had me smiling. I was thinking, 
oh, I would never have thought of doing something like that, that kind of feeling. Did you have fun making up those terrible things she did to them at times? I have to be honest. I had a wonderful time making up some of the terrible things that Melinda did. I'm almost 60 years old myself. I've got a lot of female friends. We've all been through a lot. Melinda definitely goes through a lot in the course of this book, and she changes quite a bit and redeems herself. But I really wanted to capture what so many of my friends and I are feeling, which is just a lot of reason to feel rage. (laughs) And rage is propulsive. Rage can be fun. It can, yes, also be destructive, no question. And certainly in Melinda's case, it goes too far. And she knows when it goes too far, she knows she's gone too far. But especially the early stunts that she pulls, I had so much fun doing that. I just thought to myself, Lauren has three young kids in school. This woman has control over a lot of the things happening in that school. And I thought, wow, could she make this woman's life miserable? So for any of your listeners who've had to do things like upload health forms for school, imagine if the school secretary receptionist is the person who could make everything delete and you have to re-upload everything again. Or she ends up having Lauren go home with almost all of the school pets. Or she just tries to just make her life a little difficult. And just put Lauren on notice. Yes. You wrote a great description of what you wanted to achieve. And you referred to it already in terms of not just straight romance. You say you like to write funny stories in which interesting, driven women figure out who they are and what they want, fix their mistakes, and build a life on their own terms, and even find love. Now, that sounds like a lifelong project, but not much of a name, is it? (laughs) I also, speaking of my wonderful women friends my age, I'm just forever impressed at how well women manage the chapters of their lives. We go through so many different iterations of ourselves and we reinvent ourselves so beautifully, I think. So I really did want to pay tribute to that. And those three women, the three main characters in the book, but Evelyn also, and she's our sort of outsider, but slightly older character, not much older, but but I wanted each of those women to find a way to reinvent themselves and come out in a better place than they started. And if not better, because it might not necessarily feel better at the outset, but I want them to come away with something interesting and having accomplished something that they didn't necessarily ever see was going to be part of their life. So yes, that that reinvention, especially women, is just fascinating to me because I think yeah. we're incredible at it, actually. Evelyn is actually lovely. She's the grand mother that gets called in an emergency to help come and look after the children for what was going to be a few days. At the beginning, yes. she's quite rigid and she's got very definite ideas about how they should be living their lives and she doesn't prove of their rather laissez-faire attitudes. But she evolves in a really interesting way through the book. And it was lovely to see an older woman make lots of changes as well. Yes. And to really open up her heart a little bit and to see that there's more to life out there than the small world in Boston that she was living in and that there's more than one way to live your life and be considered a success or have happiness or any of that. But I did want her to be the very quick house guest to come in 
see things from her perspective. So we could see somebody else taking in this brownstone that they live in, but maybe not go home. <laughs> maybe be the house guest that tends to linger. So yes, I love that character. I'll tell you a little, not a secret about the book, but just a sort of an interesting fact, which is that the, the first draft that I wrote of this book, I actually wrote the entire book first person from Evelyn's perspective, all 400 pages. I wrote the entire book, Evelyn, coming into Greenwich Village, seeing the situation, the entire thing was first person. It ended up not working for a number of reasons, and I had to start all over again. And from a blank document, I kept a few elements of the story in there, but for the most part, I really did just have to start over again. But it made me that experience. I don't think that was a waste of time for me at all, because you always learn something when you're writing. I got to know that character extremely well. So it really just helped me understand her perspective. So when I finally, in the new version of the book, when I ended up with the one chapter that was Evelyn's, it was so much fun to sit down and write that because I felt like I knew her as well as I know anyone else in my life, as well as I know my own sisters. I felt like I really had a grasp for who she is. Certainly, and I was going to ask you about your writing process and because one critic did say that you landed more planes than a New York air traffic controller does with the plotting. And I thought maybe you had started as one of those people with a huge outline that you wrote to, but obviously not for this book anyway. I'm a big believer in outlines, and I would encourage anyone to try to write one if they can. And I know I taught high school English for years, and I always told my students, you've got to start with an outline. For me, for writing fiction, I find it very difficult. I have done it before and ended up throwing the entire outline away. I think because the way I write and everybody is different and there is no right and wrong way of doing any of this. But for me, it's all about really getting to know the characters. And the only way I can get to know the characters is to write. So I write and then I get a quarter of the way in and I say, oh, no, that's not what she would do. That's not what she would say because I get to know the person a little bit better. So I go back and correct as I move forward. And it's hard for me to know where we're going until I know who they are, because I don't always know how they're going to react to certain situations. So for me, I have to write a lot of the wrong words before I can get to the right ones. This book, I'm working on a new book right now, and I spent a lot more time thinking before I put pen to paper. And I buy that metaphorically because I strictly use a laptop, but I spent a lot of time walking and thinking and traveling for this book. I was on a book tour for this for the sweet spot and just thinking instead of just jumping in. And I was starting to get nervous because I was thinking, I've got to start. I've got to start. Like, I've got to get some words on the page. When I finally did sit down to write, it came easily to me because I had, I think, spending that time just thinking about the characters and what I thought their issues might be and where I might want to have them end up. I think that's actually helped me a little bit this time. Just working out a few things in my head. You bring in that idea of the sweet spot very nicely in the book. But there is a bar called the sweet spot, which has a fairly central part to play as well. But each one of the characters in a different way and in a different part of the book seems to recognize for themselves, oh, this is a sweet spot for me or this is my sweet spot. So it's nicely yeah. threaded into the book. Yes. And the bar, coming up with the idea for the bar was so much fun because I wanted this family to get to the privilege of living in this brownstone, but I didn't want to make life too easy for them. So first I filled it with things that weren't their own things that they were going to have to live with and set up a situation where they couldn't just clear out the house. 
then I thought, well, let's also not have it be one of these absolutely beautifully renovated brownstones. Let's give them an unrenovated brownstone with the big air conditioning units in the windows and really terrible appliances and just a kitchen that really needs to be gutted and redone. And I thought, that's good. They're pretty uncomfortable now. And then I thought, what if I could make them a little bit more uncomfortable? And I thought I was walking around my neighborhood and I thought, let's put a bar in the basement because that happens here all the time. You might have a dry cleaner in the basement or a bakery. And I thought, no, let's have a bar in the basement because that would create a little extra mayhem. But also it would be a really nice place for happenstance. It would be a good meeting place where people encounter each other. And the scene where I have Melinda come into the bar for the first time, she kind of ducks in and happens to meet Philip and then the bartender, Dan, who ends up becoming important to her. That scene at the bar, that was just so much fun for me to bring those people together in that setting. And then, of course, I thought the bar should be called The Sweet Spot because it's just a great name for a bar. Yeah, (laughs) it is really nice. You mentioned musical chairs, and I noticed online that you had a disclaimer on the website, which I'm sure is tongue-in-cheek, but it says the book is definitely not autobiographical. And I just wondered why you felt you wanted to pop that on there. Yes. So again, if you look on YouTube and you put in my name, Musical Chairs, you'll see a very funny video that I made with my family on exactly this topic. So I had written the book. And I decided to have musicians in the book. And I happen to have children who are not only musically inclined, but two of them were actually pursuing music professionally. So that was part of my life now. Classical music is kind of part of my life now. And then, of course, the book was already finished and COVID happened. And we all got locked down in this house that we have that's absolutely falling apart in Connecticut. And all three of my adult children moved back home. And one of the main driving forces of the book is that this woman comes to her Connecticut home, which is falling apart, just like mine, and her two adult children move back home. But that was purely an accident. And I just thought, this is crazy. I feel like I'm living the life of my main character now. A lot of it was wish fulfillment fantasy for me because, of course, she ends up Her daughter ends up meeting a guy who's a fixer-upper who can just fix anything. That's literally, you want to know what like my fantasy life is? It's a fixer-upper. A guy that will just come, see that something's broken in my house and just fix it. That's, to me, that's just the dream. That's part of where that came from. Oh, that's funny. It's a life imitating art, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. Yep, exactly. For that book, you had a playlist which you put up too. And I can understand because it is musically baseball. But if you had a playlist for The Sweet Spot, what do you think it would be? Oh, that's such a fun question. I think I would have a lot of, I picture like kind of classic rock songs for like everything that takes place in the bar. But I also like the idea of some sort of Frank Sinatra, New York themed songs. I would definitely have some of that in there too. Some jazz because of The Sweet Spot, because they have jazz trios come. Yeah. And then, of course, I would have to throw in a Taylor Swift song because I have Melinda living right on Cornelia Street across the street from where Taylor Swift actually lived when she was in New York. So I would have to throw in a little Taylor Swift also. But I gave it actually in real life, you don't particularly like to write to a playlist. I don't really. Music featured very heavily in, in my book, Musical Chairs, just because the main character, they live and breathe 
classical ensemble music. A playlist was really fun for me to write because the pieces were all in the book. They were all mentioned in the book someplace or other. But that was exception for me. There's definitely less music in my other three books. What got you started in writing at the beginning? Was there once some light bulb moments where you thought, oh, I must just write a book or I'm not going to be realizing my future? It's funny because I've been a reader my whole life. And I thought as a very young girl that because I loved books, I thought I should become a librarian. And that was my goal for quite a long time. And then I studied English and ended up becoming an English teacher. And that fit me pretty well because I really do love sharing with young people books that I think can just really change one's entire viewpoint. So to get to do that with young students, not young, I taught 11th and 12th grade, but I just mean young minds. That was really great. And I also did a lot of theater right out of college. And I think that those things, my love of books, my love of theater, and my love of even teaching, showing, you know, and with theater, the sense of an audience, none of that really came together for me. So I didn't publish my first book until I turned 50. So I was doing all of these other things, raising my three boys, teaching. I worked in admissions for a long time for a private school in New York City. And it wasn't until I was in my late 40s that I started dabbling in writing. And I wrote this book about Texas because I'm from Texas originally. and it was just one of those amazing serendipitous things where I ran into a woman who knew that I had written this book. And I said, I don't even know what to do with it now. I've written this book. And it was really the book I wrote to learn how to write a book. So she sent it to a friend of hers who was an, a literary agent. And she said, there's things I like about your voice, but I can't sell that book. There's just no way that I could sell that book. Is there anything else you're thinking of working on? And at the time I was working in this admissions department at a private school, and I said, I'd really love to write a book about admissions department, New York City families, the lengths that they'll go to get their kids into just the right school. And she said, try to write that book and I'll see what I can do. I was just about 50 by the time that book actually was finished and sold. So this is a new career for me. This is really stretching me in ways that are sometimes terrifying, but good. I think it's a good mental exercise to have to learn a whole new career later in life. So I think it's all been very positive. I'm really glad I've taken this next step. It's been great. And I would just say to anyone out there listening, if you have a book in you, all you can do is sit down and write it. Like that that's the first thing is you can't just sit and think and just have the idea. Just go ahead and sit down and write it. And it may never see the light of day. My first certainly didn't. But you never know. You never know. And the first book that might not quite work might help you write the next one. You mentioned your acting background, and I wondered if you were ever tempted to record your own books because they are an audio. They are. I've never really thought about doing it, although I would absolutely entertain the idea because I do love. So when I go out to do book events, I love to read. I always do something very short because I think it's hard to hold people's attention for too long in that kind of a setting. But I love to read for my own books. So I would consider it. I would also consider, for example, my book in the drawer, the book that never got published. I would consider writing a screenplay for that because there are things about that story that I think still worked. It just didn't hold together as a work of fiction. But I would consider trying my hand at screenwriting. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Turn away perhaps from the specific books to talk a little about your wider career. 
I see that you split your time between Germany and the US because of the demands of your husband's career. Tell us a little about how that works. And when you're writing in a, a different place, does it feel like a different experience? Yes, my husband works in New York City and he has a job in Frankfurt at a neuroscience institute there. So we go back and forth quite a lot. The downsides, I never know where my shoes are. I never know where anything is because we go back and forth so often. The upside is getting to travel. We live in Frankfurt. And if anyone looks at a map, Frankfurt is smack in the center of Europe. And it's very easy to hop on a train and get almost anywhere in four hours. <laughs> you can go pretty much anywhere you want. So it's been really an amazing thing. I can work anywhere. The main thing that I need for working is just no interruptions. So as long as my husband's at work and I've got the day to just really focus, because my kids are grown and flown. So as long as I have the time and the quiet, I can work on a plane. I can work in Germany. I can work in New York. It doesn't make a difference to me. What I do notice is that just getting out and about is helpful. So as much as I love to just hunker over my laptop and really focus on the work, whenever I get stuck, wherever I am, I always find it helps to just get out, see a little bit of your neighborhood, see a little bit of the world around you, maybe go to something, anything stimulating, go to a museum, go to a cafe and eavesdrop, like almost anything like that can really just perk me back up if I'm feeling at all a little bit stuck. You never exactly. know what you're going to overhear or who you're going to see, like what kind of encounter you're going to have. And for me, all of that stuff is interesting. And at Frankfurt, what's your neighborhood like there? Oh, it's beautiful. Our neighborhood, did you say? Yes. Yes, it's just lovely. It's a very busy, lively neighborhood with lots of fun restaurants and bars and shops. And I can walk to everything. I almost never drive in Frankfurt. There's just no reason to get into a car between the public transportation, the scooters and walking. <laughs> it's a small city, so I can get pretty much anywhere in the city within 20 to 30 minutes. I can get pretty much anywhere. But it's a lovely neighborhood. I'll be going back there next month. And I'm very excited because it's summer. And so all the restaurants will have their tables outside. And it's like Greenwich Village and that there are a lot of just very beautiful tree-lined streets. And yeah, I love it there. And how's your German? My German is absolutely terrible. Terrible. I've been going to Germany for 30 years now. I lived in Berlin for a couple of years when my kids were small. And then my German got pretty good. I have to say, I was very much able to function, watch television. I got really good. Then I had a big break from going. And boy, when I tell you I lost it, I feel like I just lost it. When I go to Germany now, if I walk into a shop and speak German, they're always very sweet and they answer me in English. And I'm like, I'm trying here. And so sometimes I'll answer in German again. And they'll answer in English. And finally, I just give up and say, fine, your English is so much better than my German. Let's just communicate that way. But my regret is that I now, again, I'm, I have trouble reading in German and I have trouble like watching TV. I feel like I miss all the jokes. I have a little bit of a hard time keeping up unless it's just a really good like crime show or something where you know there's a formula and you can figure it out. If there was one thing that you would see as, quotes the secret of your success in your writing career, what would it be? Probably just, well, a lot of luck. <laughs> a lot of luck. And then two things. One is just persistence. It's really hard. And you've just got to keep going, even when you think you have nothing to say or you think you're, you have to start your entire book over again. Or 
anything like that. So there's persistence and then really listen to people, like be willing to take criticism. Don't be too precious about your words. If your editor says that this isn't working, believe them it's not working and be willing to get back and redo it. The only people I think who have a lot of trouble with that are people who they just don't want the criticism. They think that what they've written is perfect. Nothing ever is. And they're just not willing to listen and just erase a chapter and start over. When you started out, what was your goal and have you reached it? Was it simply to write one book or did you want to see a TV series? Oh, good question. I think on some level I've achieved it. On some level, just getting a cover on my first book was pretty much all I ever dreamed of. Now that I've been doing this for a while, I do think that you push the goal line a little bit. I would love, yes, I would love, for example, to write a screenplay or a stage play someday. That's something that I, that is on my bucket list of things I'd like to do. I'm currently under contract to write two books right now. So I'm working on the first of those two. I would really like these next two books to be books that I am as proud of as I am the first four. I don't, I want to keep that bar that I've set for myself where it is. That's important to me. I don't ever want to look at my books on a shelf and be like, oh, but don't read that one. It's not very, I want to feel that each of my books has its own strengths and shines in its own way. Yeah, that's lovely. We always like to ask our authors about their reading habits because this is joys of binge reading. And when I started out, it was the thought of those whale readers, as they call them, who go from book to book. And if they discover an author, read their backlist. Mostly we do have multiple authors who already are published. I don't know if you've ever been a binge reader yourself, but tell us a bit about your reading habits and just a couple of books that you'd recommend that are available right now. Absolutely. I've always been a reader and, and I always read. I'm not one of those people that when I'm writing a book, I have to stop reading. In fact, I find that it's one of those things that can be very stimulating, I think, because I'll read something and it's so beautifully done and I'll go, oh, how did she do that? Or how did she make me feel that? And so I'm always reading. I am also a binge reader and that I really started out as a binge reader because I remember falling in love with an author named Kay Gibbons and reading every single book she ever read. She wrote a lovely book called Ellen Foster, tiny, slim little book that I remember reading in an afternoon and then getting her entire backlist. Stephen McCauley is a Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts author who I just love. As soon as I hear he's got a new book out, immediately I go, I have to read it. Eleanor Littman is another one. My recent reads that I've really enjoyed, I just finished reading Stephen Rowley's new book called The Celebrants. He wrote a wonderful book a couple of years ago called The Gunkle that I just loved, absolutely laughed, and it's wonderful. And his new book, The Celebrants, is a really cool idea about a group of friends and watching them go through life and meet during these incredibly important moments in their lives. I laughed a lot and really, and cried and really enjoyed it. I loved Barbara Kingsolver's new book. Demon Copperhead. That was fascinating. Speaking of a great first person narrator, she just did a beautiful job. And I, again, I learned a lot about the opioid crisis and certain areas of the United States. And it's a really well written book. And finally, I'll end Curtis Sittenfeld's romantic comedy. I really enjoyed that as well. Speaking of rom coms, 
she has a character in there who's a very famous musician. And when I wrote my book, Limelight, I have the 18-year-old version of that man in her book. And I read romantic comedy and I thought, oh, I hope my musician, he was only 18. I hope he grows up to be a man as wonderful as the man in her book, Romantic Comedy. I think that's my fantasy is that my character Carter would grow up to be a man as wonderful as that. That's gorgeous. That really is gorgeous. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your writing career that you'd like to change, what would it be? Start sooner. Yeah. I wish I had started sooner, even if nothing had ever gotten published, even if it had all just been for me. I wish I had just written more. I would sometimes get a little idea of something and I just didn't follow through. And I wish I had followed through more. It is a day at book clubs, and I think your books are the sort of books that book clubs love to be able to get together and chat over. Do you do book club digital meetings? And if so, how can people get hold of you to arrange them? I love doing book clubs. COVID has been so awful. But one of the really interesting things that came out of COVID is just the idea that a book club of 12 people would invite you to join them. For me, that just didn't really happen until COVID. So I love to do that. And if you go to my website, which is just my name, amypopel.com, you'll find all the different ways to reach me. My email address is on there, but I really enjoy it. I think what a lot of book clubs like to do is they like to meet and discuss the book themselves and then have the author pop in after they've gotten a chance to discuss the book openly so they don't hurt the author's feelings, maybe, or just to get to share their own thoughts. I love to come to book clubs. So definitely listeners should reach out and let me know their schedules. And I would be so happy to pop in. That's wonderful. And it's interesting that it was partly as a result of COVID that started happening. Yes, because I've had people invite me. I go to in-person book clubs when I can. If it's local and I can go somewhere, I love to. I just went to an event, about 18 women or so, in a church building in Bridgewater, Connecticut, and had the best time. They were the most engaged bunch of readers. They were just lovely, and they had homemade brownies. Win. That was just fantastic. But it is nice that this idea that Zooming is so easy, and so I went to a book club about two weeks ago in California, but on Zoom. But they were all together in their living room and had a TV screen and she hooked her computer up to it. So I could see all of them, which was really nice. And other times they're just virtual book clubs where everybody's in their own home. And that's great, too. I think it's social. I think it's fun to talk to people. And I love to get readers thoughts on characters and the choices that they make. So for me, it's a lot of fun. Yes, it is interesting. I saw a comment online that one reader had said, they wish there was a little bit more of Lauren in the book. So people have these feelings of one character or another. They want to know more about them, don't they? Exactly. Yes. And that's fun for me to think about. Or they sometimes people will say, well, if there were a sequel, where are they now? Like, where are these characters now? And is the baby okay? (laughs) And did they keep in touch? And I love to talk about that sort of thing because yes, the baby's okay. And I think they all did keep in touch because I think they became very important to each other. But that's the sort of conversation that I love to have and absolutely welcome. Yeah, that's right. If you're worrying about your limelight character and what he's like now in real life, they are very real to you, aren't they? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) We've definitely covered it, but always our wrap-up question is, 
do you like to interact with readers and where can they find you online? Just give us an idea of your social handle labels. If- yes. You can always reach me, as I said, through my website, which is just amypopel.com. I'm on Instagram at Amy Popel. So just my name, one word. I'm also on Twitter, although I have to say less so lately. I just opened my first TikTok account. We'll see oh, how that goes. That- I <laughs> It may go nowhere. I feel like I'm about as extended as I can be on social media. But yes, you can always ask questions on Goodreads. Goodreads has a little question and answer thing. So sometimes I've had readers reach me that way. But it's really nice. And I have readers that are friends now, like readers who read my first book and they have followed me through all my books. There's a woman who lives in Oregon. I've never met her. Her name is Donna. She was one of the first people who read my first book, Small Admissions. And now as soon as I get an advanced copy of my book, I get in touch with her and say, Donna, have you moved? Can I send you a copy? Because I feel like she's been with me on this journey from the beginning. Readers, I couldn't do this without readers. I think most authors will tell you we're so grateful to our readers. What would we do? We would be writing just only for ourselves, which is valuable in its own way. But to share these stories with other people and to get to hear their thoughts on them is really what makes this profession so worth it. All the hard work, all the lonely days in front of your laptop. Those are the things that make it worth it. So I would encourage you to always... I love it when somebody just reaches out to me on Twitter or on Instagram and says, I just read your book and really liked it. I love it. That's great. There's always one that I do ask, and I'm just overlooked it, but right at the end, over the next 12 months sitting at your laptop, you mentioned you've got two books that are due. Are they in a similar vein and are you carrying on in the way that you've been going? Tell us just a little about what your next 12 months looks like. Absolutely. So this book, I'm about a third of the way through now. It's very much a similar vein in that it's families in turmoil, finding the humor in the turmoil. I'm leaving New York City for this book. So this book is going to take place in Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm from, and in Berlin, Germany. So families from those two places for reasons that you will eventually find out what they are, um, they are going to swap homes for what they think is going to be about a year. They have different goals, actually, at the outset of how long they're each leaving, fleeing, I should say, fleeing home. So it's, again, it's a comedy, two families, the two women in the two families, their children, how their children end up meeting. And it's definitely a comedy. There will be a little bit of romance in it, as my other books do. As for the book after that, I have no idea. The sky is the limit. Even while I'm writing this book, I'm thinking, I have an editor who I work with who said to me one time, who do you want to spend the next year and a half with? Because that's really what it feels like. These are the people that you surround yourself with for a year or so. And I remember when I started Musical Cheers, I remember she said to me, do you want to spend the next year with these people? And I thought about it for a little bit and I thought I do. I really do want to spend the next year and a half with them. So that's sort of what it's like. So I'm already thinking what neighborhood, what kinds of people, what world do I want to throw myself into after the one that I'm writing now? Look, Amy, that's just a wonderful way to finish off. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and with your information. Thank you so much for having me. And I wish happy reading to all of your listeners. Thanks so much. Next week on Binge Reading, Australian best-selling international author Fiona Lowe and her contemporary thriller, The Money Club. 
a small town stung by a local buddy's Ponzi scheme. It's a gripping exploration of modern greed as Fiona unpicks the moral quagmire of those who trade on the bonds of their closest friendships and family for money. That's it for today. Happy reading and see you next time 